some of you have asked from time to time uh, about uh, how things are going with my eyesight. This Thursday, I'm supposed to get this eye fixed, which would be great because I haven't seen this side of the congregation for three months. So it would be really good to see you guys again and to see the other half of my notes, too. That would help. I, I, I just had this fear that I was going to Jude far too fast. And maybe it's because I was hitting every other page. But we're not doing Jude today. Surprised? It's a communion Sunday. And I love to focus on what the Lord has done for us. So I, I stepped back from Jude. Oh, yes, he'll be back. Um, but we're going to Psalm 22 today. Psalm 22. And we're going to focus upon the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. Next week... Uh, we have VBS kids here in family, we hope and we pray. So uh, pray about next week's message. I, I intend to be highly evangelistic, uh, just so that some folks might hear uh, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so be in prayer for that, too, when you're thinking about everything else. It's going to be a very heavy week on evangelism here at VBS and uh, in our services and our other events that come up at the end of this week. So uh, be in prayer for that. You never know who the Lord might reach. We had one of our team workers reach for Christ. Was it two years ago or last year? Two years ago. Two years ago. And that's like, that's pretty cool when, when you have your workers come to know the Lord too. So anyway, be in prayer for that. But focus with me today. Uh, Psalm 22, I'm just going to bring you into the first three verses today and focus on one part, and that's right immediately at verse number one. It starts, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day and you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. Heavenly Father, we've got a passage here that's uh, rich, rich in our understanding of the Savior's sacrifice on our behalf. Help us to get a glimpse of it. Uh, Only you can teach us accurately and thoroughly what we are looking at today. And we come before you Lord Jesus Christ, and thank you. Even before we study the nature of that sacrifice, we know you've done it, and you've done it for us. And we stop and say thank you, even before we begin with thinking and talking about it. You deserve our praise, for you have done great things, and especially the work on the cross on our behalf is is stunning to study, and yet so wonderful to know that you did this for us. May our attention just be glued to the page today as we look at these words, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a, what I call a trilogy in Psalm 22, 23, and 24. In Psalm 22, we talk about a Savior who was sacrificed for us. Psalm 23, a shepherd who leads us. Psalm 24, a sovereign who deserves our acknowledgement and our worship. And I kind of like those three things together. The fact that he's our savior, and he's our shepherd, and he's our sovereign. And it's a great study. We're not going to do that today. That will take some time to develop. But it is a beautiful combination of three psalms together. I think the Lord even orchestrated the order in which we get to enjoy them here. Some people don't think that. I think so. At least I could see a pattern there, and I liked it very much. And someday we'll develop that a little bit more. But today, we go to the Psalm 22, the first of those three, and we talk about the sacrifice, the Savior who was sacrificed for us. Perhaps you've heard before, uh, there's been books written on this topic even, the seven... Statements from the cross. Seven. One, five, seven. Okay. What are they? Somebody give me one. It is finished. 
Forgive them, for they know not what they do. He asked John to take care of his mom. I thirst. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're down to two. There's, what did he tell him? Today you'll be with me in paradise. One more. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Good. Now in order. No. no. That's okay. That's okay. I know it is finished with the last. <laughs> That's the easiest one of the, of the bunch. But I thought this was interesting. For the time that he spent on the cross to have seven statements. And I could only imagine being on a cross that you don't want to talk anyway. But even down to the last, he said with a loud voice. And there's a lot that can be studied in that picture. But when I stepped back and looked at it, I said, okay, there's seven statements here. Who recorded what? We've got four Gospels here that these are, are interspersed among those four Gospels. And I found this very interesting that it is John who really recorded the most conversation. In John chapter 19, he's talking about, you know, the father or... or uh, his mother and John and saying, behold your mother and behold your son. And, and that conversation is going on in the book of John. The phrase, I thirst, is in the book of John. And it is finished, is in the book of John. Nobody else records those words. I said, that's interesting. So I go over to Luke. And Luke chapter 23 records also the dialogue there. And there are three statements there. Father, forgive them, is one that he brings up. Second one, that dialogue with the thief. Today you, uh, you will be with me in paradise. And then his final statement, into your hand I commit my spirit. All right. So those three are in the book of Luke. So that means out of the seven, there's only one left. And what's interesting is, Matthew and Mark are the only two that make this statement, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? None of the other gospel writers include that. But these two do, and it's the only statement both of those gospels record Jesus saying at the cross. That's a very interesting. I don't know what to do with that, but I just think it's very, very interesting that Matthew and Mark are very quiet about the statements on the cross. But they both record that one statement. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, they also go on to say that he cried out with a loud voice later. And it probably was, it is finished. Or, into your hands I commit my, my spirit. But they didn't say what he said. They just said he cried out with a loud voice and, and died. But I just find it interesting that those Gospels... You take seven statements and you come down to Matthew and Mark and they only record the one. I think if there is one phrase in all seven of those that depict the anguish of the cross more, I don't know that there's anything greater than the way he said that. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's what I want to focus on with you today. We know that uh, when Jesus was on the cross, it was far more than just physical suffering, wasn't it? If we just wanted to talk about the extreme physical sufferings, well, there's been a lot of studies on that. Even medical doctors have written on that and explained what that experience was like. The body being broken, the blood being poured forth, the scourging, the beating, the striking with fists, crown of thorns in the head... No sleep the night before. No drink but a bitter wine and probably more like vinegar if you're into drinking vinegar. Uh, it was a sour drink. There's depictions that he was marred beyond recognition. Of course, there was the nails in his feet and his hands and later a spear in his side. The whole concept is that of suffocation and heart failure. And all his bones are out of joint, and he has no strength, and his tongue is dried up inside of his mouth. It's, it's a horrific picture to study. It's really a horrific thing to even imagine that somebody would do that for me. 
I, I say this, and it's almost a joke, but I don't remember anyone even getting a black eye for me. But Jesus died for me. And that just stuns me to think that he would pay that price for me, for us. And that's only a portion of his suffering. You had the emotional side of the suffering too. He was betrayed by Judas. Don't think that didn't hurt. As the psalmist talks about, he ate bread with them and he was betrayed by one who ate bread with me. Um, He was denied by Peter. Maybe that was even more painful. And he saw that. There's one little caption in the book of Luke, I believe it is, that when the cock crowed and Peter had denied him, the Lord turned and looked at him. I said, ooh, what a little phrase that is. Many times we just fly right by that, but that, that had to have hurt a great deal, even though he knew that was coming. He knew about the physical too, didn't he? He was abandoned by all his disciples. Remember in the garden, they split. Boom, they were out of there. He was mocked at his trial. He was questioned as to his own person and his relationship with God the Father. He was questioned constantly about that. He was lied about in the trial. He was treated unjustly. You know that. He was bullied by the soldiers. He was blasphemed. He was reviled by religious leaders. He was traded for a thief. Barabbas. He was crucified with thieves. He was publicly shamed on the cross. He was mocked while on that cross by thieves even. And by those who stood below. I I don't know many emotional sufferings that were omitted in this list. From betrayal to mocking to reviling and all the other aspects. And folks, we don't even like one of those things happening to us. And he has a whole catalog of emotional things that came his way. Add to it what happens here at the beginning of chapter 22, forsaken by his father. And then you go into the third aspect of his suffering, which was spiritual in nature. And that, folks, I really don't know if I could even approach it to try to understand what he endured for us in the spiritual suffering. Some people approach the whole concept very cautiously, uh, somewhat quietly. Some say it's like entering the Holy of Holies. Uh, I don't know. I've never tried entering the Holy of Holies. But they, they say it's a, it's a place where you must be quiet. There's a tragedy here. And the spiritual suffering is beyond words. I think more than just viewing it like an outsider at something that that uh, would cause me to be quiet. You know, anytime I'm heading down the road and there's an accident scene, I pray for those people. I don't even know who they are. And it quiets my heart. How about you? I, I stop and I think, oh, somebody could be hurt here. And... When the ambulance goes out, you can hear it in town. I pray for whoever's serving you paramedics out there. Thank you very much. You guys going out to help somebody. I don't even know who they are, but in this little town, I guess it could be somebody I know. And so I pray for those kind of things. And and yet many times when we approach the cross, we treat it like it's an external thing out there. But when I think of approaching a cross and dealing with the spiritual suffering that Christ went through, I realize very, very vividly, it's my sin that he is taking on there. It's my sin. It's my shame. And and I don't know how you try to describe that. You would understand it. Just personally, I think you would. I was contemplating this the other day and was talking with Pamela about it. She always gets a preview. I practice a little bit during the week to tell her, this is what I'm going to speak on Sunday. And and so I I was talking about that with her and, and I remembered at the time as I was trying to describe approaching the spiritual suffering of Christ and realizing it was my sin, the shame the shame. I go back to when I was, I don't know, maybe in third grade or second grade. Is that a long ways back? For me it is. 
we had just started attending a, a new church. And I was a little kid. And uh, my mom, she was very dedicated to things in the church. We were there for Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Uh, Saturday, we were there to clean the church. We were there a lot. And uh, my parents were not in the ministry, but they loved the Lord, and they wanted to serve Him. And so we all went. And even as a little kid, I, I'd be bored while she was cleaning on Saturday. And I was in the Sunday school room. And I'm, when I told this to Pamela the other day, I said, you know, I've never told anybody this story before. Now I'm telling everybody. Um, but I was in the Sunday school room, and the teacher, an elderly man, had on the bulletin board a bunch of pictures of those who had been in his class from years and years and years of teaching and missionary pictures and all these up on this bulletin board. And um, we found some darts. And we spent a good portion of the afternoon throwing darts at pictures. What else do you do with a dart? We just kept flinging them there and not thinking a thing of it until the next day in church when he came in and saw all his pictures just full of holes. Still, <laughs> it chokes me up. That, the shame I felt. I never confessed. Oh, he knew it was me. <laughs> he knew it was me. He didn't come down on me. I, I, his grace and mercy was bigger than I deserved. But I can still remember this day, the look on his face when he saw that, and the shame that just came on to my heart. I was just a little kid, but that's the first time I understood I had done something terrible, and it hurt somebody. And that's a feeling, if you call it that, that I sense when I walk into this room and talk about what Jesus did for me. The shame of it all. I caused it. Right? You all agree, I did it, right? It's my fault. There's a song I've sung before. And the fact is, those nails were mine. That rusty nail belonged to me, yet he took it and let me go free. And it stuns me that anyone would love us like that. But Jesus on that cross knew my shame. He knew my disappointment and what I had done and what it meant to him. There was defeat. In that picture, there is fear of discovery. Sin always has that fear of discovery. I don't want anyone to know this. There's the pains of the penalty. The reflection on it. How it looks to your pride. I mean, how many times does sin make you feel good? It doesn't. It crushes. It crushes. It crushes all the time. It leaves behind a hopelessness. And if it becomes a habit, it, boy, it's a tough one, isn't it? The destruction that it leads is all over there. Nothing good ever comes from sin. Do you know that? Nothing good. It has one direction it goes, and that's to the pit. It's on the road to destruction. It always leads to death. That's what sin does. The wages of sin is death. It's a chain that binds us. It, it's a, it's, really, it's like the nail that seals the coffin of the soul. It just closes it. And there's nothing to hope for. Of course, we have read God's Word and we step back and we say, Oh, how great a Savior we have. How great a Savior we have. Because His suffering was more than just physical. And it was more than just emotional. It was spiritual. And all the weight of our sin was put upon him. That stuns me. Isaiah 53, one of those great chapters we spend time in, it talks about the Lord was pleased to crush him. Wow! Such terms. Such very picturesque ways of saying things. You know... The high priest wasn't even allowed to enter the Holy of Holies until he dealt with his own sinfulness first. 
Back in the Old Testament, all those years, the high priest on the Day of Atonement would go into the Holy of Holies. Oh, he didn't just walk in there because he was a holy guy. He had to deal with his own sins. In Hebrews chapter 5, it says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of man and things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided since he himself is also beset with weakness. And in verse 3 it says, And because of it he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. And in Hebrews chapter 7 it adds another verse. This high priest, in contrast to Jesus, Jesus who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. What I'm reading to you is something very pronounced and important to understand in Scripture. When you see Christ operating in your and my high priest and taking upon him our sin, it's not because he had to deal with his own or he was being punished for his own. It was our sins, not his. It was our sins that led to the suffering of Christ. It was our guilt. It was our sin. It was our blame. And it was dealt with there. Jesus did not mask it. It was not left unknown. It was not left unsaid. When Peter wrote in Second, First Peter chapter 2, verse 21 to 24, this is what he said. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. John the Baptist saw him one day, and John the Baptist yelled out to everybody who'd hear it, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. How much did he carry that day upon himself? I don't even know a mathematical uh, equation to figure this one out. The sins of the whole world laid upon him. It wasn't done in secret. There was a uh, company that created what they thought would be a great uh, uh, movie film on the sacrifice of Christ on his death. Uh, it came out way back in the early 1990s, and they invited us pastors to go and watch a private viewing at the movie theaters. And I lived in Birmingham at the time, so we we all went over there to watch this thing. And it was supposed to be the new one, the big one, you know, like you got Jesus of Nazareth and all these other great movies out there. And this was supposed to be one like that. And I was so absolutely disappointed with the whole thing. Because, as I recall, they depicted the death of Christ in a barn out in the woods, nailed to the rafters, and nobody was there to see it. It was all done in secret. It didn't come out, did it? No pastor in their right mind who knew Scripture would say, let's support that one! And so, we never heard from it again. And I'm thankful for that. Because Jesus did not do this in secret. This is public. He died for my sins publicly. I don't know how you approach a cross. I kind of gave you a sense of what I'm trying to express. If we were called today to walk directly up to it and stare up at it, how would we approach that cross? How would we look at it? Today, in this verse, we look at what I think is the most painful expression from the mouth of Jesus ever recorded. 
It's while he died for you and for me, while he took sin upon himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's take a closer look at this just for a few minutes here this morning. The the phrase, if you have a, a Bible that gives you the caption above it, a little caption that tells you who wrote it or what it was all about, you might be looking at it right now and saying, I don't even know if I could pronounce some of those words. Uh, it's for the choir director. So, choir director, here it is. Uh, upon Igelith Hashishar. I think that's how you'd say it. Of course, if you've got King James, you don't have the hash, you just have the shashar. All right? And you say, well, does that make a difference? I think it takes a da out of the sentence. But it means something to the effect of a doe, a small female deer, in the morning. You say, well, that sounds pleasant. I mean, unless it's eating your geraniums or something. You, you don't mind seeing a doe walk across the backyard, do you? I know what some of you would do. If it was in season, but no. A doe just walking by. Some people say, well, no, that's just the tune. You gotta sing it to that tune. We don't know what that sounds like. Um, but more likely, this doe is being hunted. The concept behind it is that this doe is looking for relief and maybe the morning light might help it. Because it's been hunted throughout the night. And it's been running and it's tired. And you know what? That's not so uncommon, actually. When David writes this in the series of Psalms, the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, in the book of Psalms, many of them are expressions of trust, uh, running to the Lord in the midst of very difficult circumstances. Sometimes I find those 30 or 40 psalms to be so refreshing to read in the morning, or any time I'm struggling with something, I read through them because I, I realize that not only is the struggle real, but the Savior always pops up in the middle of the psalm, and there He is to rescue. And I love the rescue psalms. They're all over in that section. This is sitting in the middle of all those. It also would appear that some people say, we have no idea when David could have written this. David was the author, and, and when did he ever feel this? And matter of fact, some of the expressions in the psalm go far beyond what David could ever have known. Like the idea of being crucified, <laughs> and such like that. We say, well, that's pretty incredible. But David's trying to express something very, very difficult. And I just guess that it was during those ten years or so when he's running for his life from King Saul, King Saul intended to kill him. And the minute he'd catch him, he would. And I don't know, but maybe David is expressing the fact that, you know, I'm innocent in all this thing, and yet I'm being hunted down for execution. And I'm thinking, well, maybe that's the picture that we have here. I don't know. But there's a similar psalm starting in verse 1 of chapter 42. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. And I know we've turned that into a very beautiful, worshipful song. But that also is the deer that's just exhausted looking for something to drink. It's been running all night long. And so I just wonder if he picked that tune or said that statement just to say, hey, this is a tough one, folks. Brace yourself. This is hard, hard, hard times. And David starts to write. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says the psalmist apparently felt forsaken by God as he was surrounded by his enemies, scornful persecution. He lamented his tremendous suffering and his desperate struggle for death with death, pleading with God to deliver him from such a horrible end. And you will see that expression all the way through here. It's the expression that describes an execution, not an illness. An execution. And that fits very, very well to what Jesus experienced. And you know he used that first verse as one of his statements on the cross. David, we know, was very poetic and 
he could try to summarize what it was to be suffering. But what's interesting how the Lord could take even the, the meekest of man's thoughts and turn it into a profound statement about what Christ actually did do. The literal suffering of Christ is all over Psalm 22. And so what I really like to do beyond just today, but every time we bring up a communion for a while, we're coming back to the psalm. There's just so much to it that I want to keep reflecting on that. But let's look a little closer still. You ready? I'm just setting the table for you with the things that I've shared so far. The psalm does not at any time have a word of confession of sin. And I think that's kind of pronounced, because usually David does include that. There are no curses brought upon the enemies in this psalm, when many of his others do. It's just an account of a righteous man being put to death by wicked people. He's got a complaint. If you want to call it a complaint, I think that's kind of weak. I don't know what else to call this, but as he starts into the psalm, it implies something. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We've seen that phrase a lot. King James style. Implication of that? God. What are you doing? Why aren't you here? What happened? In a sense, who's the blame being thrown upon? That kind of a question makes it seem like, well, did God do something wrong? Is is there some? He goes on to say, I've been calling. I cried by day, verse 2 says. You didn't answer. I cried by night. You didn't answer. Why did you forsake me? Is something wrong? Is, Is God not? Doing something right here that he won't answer a prayer? You know what the fact is. God's not obligated to answer our prayers. Who are we? Creatures. His creation. When does the clay ever talk back to the potter? When do we have a real complaint against God? Say, you didn't do that right. Where do we ever get the nerve to even try it? He's not obligated to even look upon us. The fact that he does is amazing. It's sheer mercy that he cares for us. That he gives us breath to breathe. That he gives us life at all. It's all mercy. It's all grace. Because in his sight, what are we? Sinful people. Sinful people. And it's amazing that he would look upon us with love. Yet the psalmist begins to write, David says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The word is to leave someone. To abandon them. Walk away. That brings a lot of emotion, doesn't it? If you're in that spot, a lot of emotions. that Somebody you were counting on just walked away. Ooh, boy, does that hurt. It comes with a sense of disbelief, doesn't it? Like, I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you walked out on me. Just when I needed you the most, you were gone. I just can't believe that happened. This, This picture in this psalm is written by a man named David who knows what it means to be rescued by God's hand. He's had that before, hasn't he? How many times? Can we add them up? He saved me. He rescued me. He delivered me. He delivered me. He delivered me. It's like every psalm is a psalm of deliverance. How often does David know that? And now he says, but Lord, why would you leave me now? What happened? I trusted in the Lord. I've seen him do marvelous things before to bring me to deliverance. Even in the worst situation ever, I cried out and he answered me. But now he won't. He doesn't. I cry again. There's no response. I cry out louder. Nothing.
you've uh, heard of our little cat, Greta. She's quite a handful. She's, she's got a personality to her. She knows when the alarm clock is supposed to go off in the morning. And she anticipates it with this little chirping sound she makes. She'll be down at the bottom of the, the bed or somewhere in the, in the room, and she'll go, Beep! And it gets louder if we don't answer. And it just goes on and on. And then she walks over to the dresser. Wooden dresser. Sticks her claw up there. She goes, no answer. She goes after it. Just to see it. By then we're up. All right? So, okay, it worked. It worked. You got our attention. Wait, we've got a cat like that. That's little Greta. She cries out. She expects an answer. We as human beings cry out to the Lord and we think He should answer. Why? Because that's who we are. We're wired that way. We say, Lord, I called. I called. You didn't answer. Lord, I cried by night. You didn't rescue me. Lord, I cried in the morning and you didn't say anything. And you know that kind of a feeling. You've ever been there? And the suffering that goes in there and the, the groaning, he says, I groan in verse 1. I groan, I groan, I groan. And it seems like there is a thousand miles between me and help. Notice how he says it. Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. I keep calling and there's no answer. Humanly, we sense that the sky has become real hard and our prayers can't penetrate them. They're not getting through. We struggle with our need for help and it appears that God's resistant to step in and do a thing about it. Now, we have been blessed at least the last 10 or 11 years or so I've been here to see God answer prayers so many times. Haven't we? He's seen beautiful things. We got Renita sitting back there. Renita, you're always a picture of an answered prayer to me. How we prayed for the Lord to provide for that. Look, no oxygen, no mask. There she is, worshiping with it. I just I rejoice every time I see you. I say, Yes, our God answers prayer. We have had many stories like that. And you know it too. We've seen these kind of things, and we've been blessed by that, to see the history of real miracles from God's hand in the time of need. But we've also had prayers unanswered, haven't we? Things that we've asked Him for that He didn't answer that way. And and you might think, well, maybe that's a poor reflection on God. Actually, it's not. It's not. Look at these words again. Chapter 22, verse 1. Look at these words again. Jesus himself cried these out from the cross. Jesus himself said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did not say, Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. He did not say, Oh my God, I cried by day and you did not answer and by night I have no rest. He did not say that. Why not? First, he didn't ask his father to rescue him. Did he? No. It was a crowd that kept mocking him and saying, Oh, if you're really, you know, who you say you are, call the father down, call Elijah down, call somebody down, and have him rescue you. It was a crowd calling for his rescue and mocking him with it. Jesus never asked his father to rescue him. Even if Jesus had asked to be rescued, I'm going to say this very carefully, I do not believe his prayer would have been answered. Think about this for a minute. Just a short while before his crucifixion, Jesus stood in a cemetery, if you recall, where Lazarus was buried. And there you know the story. Do you know that Jesus prayed before he called Lazarus forth? And his prayer was this, 
Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around so that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus said, how often I and my Father are one. Many times. His testimony was so clear that his Father always answered his prayers because he came to do the will of the one who sent him. He said that over and over and over and over. Jesus did not plead with his Father to rescue him from the cross. He did not say, take me down. He was what Isaiah said. He was like a lamb that was silent before his shearers. Now I want to put together a couple of very strange facts here for a minute. First, did Jesus know why he was dying on a cross? Oh yeah, that's easy. Okay, these are easy questions, okay. Yes. Did Jesus know how terrible sin is? Yes. Did he know the fact that the Holy God could not endure the presence of sin? Yes. Verse 3. Yet you are holy, he says. You who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. The, The English text, yet, or King James, but, starts up verse number 3 as a contrast. The contrast is, is this, the contrast of the surprise that God does not answer, and yet God is holy. God does not answer, verse 1 and 2, but God is holy, verse 3. As such, being a holy God, he would not abandon his own, his innocent ones. That's what he, the writer is struggling with. Or maybe it's just the fact that God is holy and suffering is due to sin. Many people believe when they point to the cross, this is where the sins of the world was put upon Jesus and his father turned his face away. And Jesus had never experienced that before. Never. And he's been around in all eternity. And he's never known that. That would be a stunning thing to experience, I would agree. But I want to add one more thought to your thinking. You ready for this? And it's probably far beyond us to fully understand it. I can't yet, but I'm trying to say it in the right words. Could it be that God's abandonment was entirely in keeping with the fact that Jesus did and must pay for these sins all by himself? Do you realize that everything Jesus did, he accredited to his Father? It's his Father's work that I do. It's his Father's work. Here's a series of statements from John chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Then in chapter 5 of John, verse 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative, As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is judged, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And He said it again in John 8, verse number 28. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And He says in John 8, 42, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceed forth and have come forth from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. And in John 12, verse 49, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment to do. Now, what I'm trying to express is, Jesus says, in my work, in my life, in everything I've done, and the reason I'm here is because the Father sent me. It's his work. It's his words. I'm just doing what he told me to do. And he's with me. And he answers my prayers. And he's with me. And he's with me. And he's with me. And that's what's happening. Until he gets to the cross. And this is where I find something so interesting. One time John has the words switched in the order. Listen to this. In John 10, 18. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. 
And I stopped right there and I said, oh, let me suggest something to you. Rather than assume that Jesus was in the dark as to why his father abandoned him, why have you forsaken me? Because he wasn't in the dark about that. You told me so. And maybe even more than the idea that the sin that Jesus bore, the father could not face it. Could it be that somewhere in this, this is the first time that Jesus did something on his own apart from his father? His father did not pay for your sins. And the Holy Spirit did not pay for your sins. Who did? Jesus did. And why is it that Jesus, who depended totally upon his father all through, prayed to his father all the time, obeyed his father every single time, fulfilled his father's word, went to a cross, and the father left him there to accomplish it, to finish it all on his own. And I'm thinking there was a reason for that. Because we have redemption in his name. We have forgiveness in his name. We have salvation in his name. God was pleased to have it set up that everything goes through Jesus Christ. And so he stepped away from his son and let him die alone. So that your salvation and my salvation could go through him alone. And I say, wow, is that what it meant when he abandoned his son at the cross? It's a thought I've been chewing on, and I said, I don't even know if I could wrap my brain all the way around it. But Jesus is quoting the words of one who had to go alone in the midst of horrific suffering. He could have chose a lot of other passages. It wasn't because he had a trouble with the word why. He just knew that this is where it hurts the most for us as human beings to understand whys. Whys. It's a great mystery to me. Why did God create this world? You're glad he did though, right? But there's a big mystery in that. Why did God create man? Why would he, knowing that man and that world would reject him, why would he send his son and why would He love us while we were yet sinners? And why would He save us anyway? Why was He planning and preparing for us to spend eternity with Him? Why the love? Why the mercy? Why the cross? Why did He forsake His Son? It all comes down to us. Isn't that stunning? I'm going to read to you the words of J.C. Ryle, and then we're going to talk about this. J.C. Ryle, there is a depth, a deep mystery in these words, which no mortal man can fathom. No doubt they were not wrung from the Lord by his mere bodily pain. Such an ex- ex- explanation is utterly unsatisfactory and dishonorable to our blessed Savior. They were meant to express the real pressure on his soul of the enormous burden of the world's sins. They were meant to show how truly and literally he was our substitute, was made sin and a curse for us, and endured God's righteous anger against a world's sin in his own person. At that awful moment, the iniquity of us all was laid upon him to the uttermost. It pleased the Lord to bruise him and to put him to grief. He bore our sins. He carried our transgressions. Heavy must have been the burden, real and literal, must have been our Lord's substitution for us when He, the eternal Son of God, could speak of Himself as for a time forsaken. Let the expression sink down into our hearts and not be forgotten. We can have no stronger proof of the sinfulness of sin or of the vicarious nature of Christ's suffering when he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It is a cry that should stir us up to hate sin and to encourage us to trust in Christ. I stop with those words today because here we have a communion service before us, a remembrance that Jesus 
gave his body and his blood for us. And he told us to remember him, right? We are the ones who deserve to die. He took our place. He took it alone. Has he taken your place? I could talk all day about what I read in Scripture, but I want to get very personal with you right now. Is He your Savior? I could prove He is a Savior. But it's got to become personal, folks. He's my Savior. Is He yours? Is He yours? Do you realize He died for you? That's what this is a remembrance of. We take the bread out and we say, this is my body that's broken for you. This is cup. This is my blood which was shed for you. And if you've never put me personally, you personally in that picture, then you're just talking about a historical fact, not a personal fact. And I want you to know Jesus died for you personally. Not to put a red day on your calendar to give you a day off from work. He did it so that you can have your sins forgiven and have eternal life in His name. Have you believed that? That's what this remembrance is for. When we pass the plates, that's what I want you to remember. He did it for me. He did it for me. I can't help but rejoice in that. Can you? If that plate comes your way and you've never received Christ as Savior, I'm going to have you do something. Let it go by. Don't take it. Let it go by. Because you'd never accepted Christ, why would you accept anything that we're going to use as a token of what he's done for us? Let it go by. But the minute you let it go by, think about why you just did that. Because that gift is yours today if you take it. Eternal life is yours in Jesus Christ right now if you believe it. That's what he said. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What glorious words those are. Do you believe? If you do, participate with us with a thankful heart. If you don't, talk to him right now because he's listening. He will not forsake you if you call to him and say, Lord, I want you to be my Savior. I want to receive what you have done for me and know it's personal. Today could be the first time for somebody in this room, and I hope so.